You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 27 with Danielle Novak. Dr. Danielle Novak is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Manhattan. She has over 20 years of experience working with eating disorders and all concerns related to food, weight, and body image. She has written scholarly articles and chapters on the psychoanalytic treatment of eating disorders, which have been extremely helpful when I'm preparing webinars on that topic, the psychoanalytic treatment of eating disorders, and she serves as a clinical supervisor for psychology doctoral students. Dr. Novak is currently completing her psychoanalytic training at NYU postdoc program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. This conversation is my jam. It's eating disorders and psychoanalytic treatment married together, understanding what might be the function of an eating disorder, different behaviors, restriction, binge purge, exercise, and more importantly than understanding is how can we use that understanding to achieve healing. So if you're interested in unconscious processes and why we do what we do, this is your episode. All right, let's dive right in. Danielle, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very excited about this conversation. I've read your work and sort of know you through your papers. Um, So I'm excited to actually have this conversation. So thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So part of the way that I conceptualize eating disorders and sort of how we will expand on this for our conversation is and really all symptoms in general, is that they're developed and maintained to be protective in some way, shape, or form. And sometimes that protection is like way to the extreme to the extent that mind-body connection gets disrupted. And I know that a lot of your work talks about this. So if we're sort of going to jump right in, can you talk a little bit to that piece? And if we're talking about the mind-body connection and maybe dissociation, like what does that even mean? Sure. Yes, you're right that eating disorders both develop as a means of protection and then also maintain a sense of protection. So I do think of it as occurring in both places. And so, you know, this in terms of what dissociation means, dissociation in kind of broad terms is when there's a split or a disconnect between different aspects of experience or consciousness. So one of the ways that can happen is if there is something that has happened or that has been experienced that is sort of too much for the mind to metabolize and process or even formulate, it can become split off from consciousness so that the person doesn't actually experience it, but it's still there, inaccessible part of the mind. So dissociation is actually a normal part of being a person and everyone experiences some level of dissociation and dissociation can range from 
more sort of everyday, milder experiences to then becoming more severe and more um, significant psychopathology. An example of the kind of everyday dissociation that most people experience might be if you're you know, having a conversation with someone and then you suddenly realize that your mind has been somewhere else completely and you have no idea what that person has been saying to you. Or it can happen, you know, if you're in a class or watching TV and you sort of bring yourself back to where you are and realize that you completely missed it. So that's sort of a good everyday example of what dissociation can feel like. On the most extreme end of dissociation would be you know, something in the realm of dissociative disorders. So such as dissociative identity disorder, or what used to be called multiple personality disorder, where the person actually has multiple aspects of the self that are distinct and separate from each other. But that's much less common than the milder forms. And then I'm assuming that there's the entire continuum. So there's the everyday and then the most severe cases, and then there's basically everything in between. Yes. And I, I think that people with eating disorders typically fall somewhere in between. And again, no two people are the same because the continuum is quite large. So depending on the circumstances, if we think about this idea that it is protective, how does it happen? How does it happen that someone sort of develops this dissociative way of experiencing the world or, or why does it happen? Well, one of the ways that it can happen is as a result of trauma. So in cases of trauma, there can come about a kind of dissociative splitting of consciousness where the part of the mind or the self that was present and experiencing the traumatic event becomes kind of separated and cordoned off from other parts of the mind. And this is the way that the mind protects itself. So you know, if something traumatic happens to a child, and this is something that often happens in earlier in life, then, you know, there's the part of the mind that sort of serves as the experiencer of the trauma, and it becomes split off from the rest of the mind. So that often, so you might hear about situations in which someone has experienced a trauma earlier in life that has no memory of it, no awareness of it. And it's not that the memory or the experience is lost or gone. It's still there, but it is dissociated from the rest of the mind. And it is possible to reconnect those parts of the mind and regain access to the things that have happened so that they can be worked through. Yeah. So maybe in terms of regaining access, we'll put that on hold for a second and we'll sort of talk about that at the end. But where does it go? It goes into, you know, this can be sort of a hard concept to grasp, to think about the mind as being sort of divided. But I think common ways that people might experience this or think about this is sort of in terms of compartmentalizing. You know, that's people talk a lot about, oh, I took this and I just compartmentalized it. And that's a more deliberate or sort of conscious way of putting something to the side. So where does it go? It can go into a lot of different places. One of the places it can go is into symptoms. So you may have no sort of real conscious awareness of feeling a certain way or having had certain experiences but dissociated part of your experience manifests itself through symptoms. And symptoms can be all kinds of things, including eating disorder symptoms or somatic or bodily 
experiences. It's not that it goes away. It's just hidden from awareness. I want to go back just for a second to something that you had mentioned before as a result of trauma. So when you say trauma, what exactly do you mean? Only, And I, I mainly ask this because there unfortunately is a large population that do experience serious trauma in their childhood. And then there are a lot of people that don't, and they still experience symptoms and some level of dissociation. So what do you mean by trauma? It's a good question. So often we think of trauma as you know what I would call sort of big T trauma, experiences of abuse or you know life-threatening events that have occurred that irreparably impact the person and you know that they carry with them in some form, often dissociated throughout life. But there are also little T traumas, everyday kind of traumas that occur in one's environment. So that could be, you know, someone who has a who grows up in a caregiving environment that is inconsistent or unreliable or intrusive or neglectful. So those are some sort of milder, less extreme forms of trauma, but still very impactful and cumulative throughout someone's life. And then I would also say that, you know, big T trauma, little T trauma aren't necessarily the only kinds of experience that give rise to dissociation. For example, if you are someone who grows up in a family where feelings don't get talked about or can't be tolerated, you know, I guess that kind of does fall under the kind of little C trauma that I'm describing, more relational trauma. But this is something, you know, when someone grows up in an environment like that and discovers that no one is interested in their feelings or they're told not to have feelings or told not to cry or told just to, you know, be tough and not show what they're feeling or talk about what they're feeling, that can also lead to dissociation because the feelings are there, they're real, they have to go somewhere. So they go into a split off part of the mind that the person doesn't have access to. Yeah. So sort of taking this to make specific for an eating disorder. So any of the symptoms, maybe all of the symptoms, can you give maybe an example of what that would look like? Sure. So I tend to believe that eating disorder behaviors are often sort of stand-ins for feelings that cannot be felt as feelings or expressed through words or through other means. So the body ends up holding the feelings and these feelings can be experienced somatically. So there are a number of ways that feelings can become made into something concrete that's experienced physically. People can experience abdominal pain, the stomach pain, as a substitute for what they may actually be feeling, which is anxiety or headaches or fatigue. Those are some of the ways that emotional experience can get manifested physically. And then there are also active behaviors that people can engage in that are also in the service of dissociation and you know, often I think of these symptoms as attempts to manage feelings that feel unmanageable and feel impossible to put into words. So sometimes people will turn to, you know, substance use to try to cope with feelings in a more physiological way or different modes of self-harm. And 
related to self-harm are also symptoms of eating disorders. Eating disorder symptoms can be used to dissociate from feelings. For example, often people describe restriction as giving them a sense of like numbness and detachment that often feels preferable and safer than actually feeling their feelings. So this is something I hear people describe all the time that when they are restricting and they feel the sort of, again, like sort of floatiness or a sense of detachment and unreality that accompanies restriction, they find that they feel less sad, they feel less angry, that everything feels less intense because they are using the symptom to detach from their experiences. And this is also especially over time. It's not just one isolated experience of restriction. Over time, this can happen. And that it's sort of echoing what you were saying before. This isn't a conscious decision. Maybe they're able to realize this later, but it's not like, oh, I feel sad. Let me restrict. Right. Most of the time, I would say usually it's not. Often, at least the way it starts is that there's an onset of the eating disorder and the restriction. And one of the benefits, even if it's not really something that someone says, oh, you know, if I restrict, then I don't feel these feelings. But this is one of the ways that the restriction can be rewarding because someone who may have experienced distress feels less distressed and more sort of preoccupied with food and what's going on in their body and how the feeling less in their body. But I, I, what I, what I do often see is that as time goes on, and like you said, it is cumulative, some people will actually discover that restricting allows them to feel less. So, oh, when I, you know, I'm feeling really stressed today, I'm just going to restrict more. And I know that 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 will help me feel better. And of course, this is maladaptive because it's putting the person at risk in the ways that restriction does that. And also the person is sort of bolstering their dissociative process and not engaging with the reality of what's happening in their lives or internally in an emotional sense. So that would be a good example of how the eating disorder is maintained and less so how it's developed. So originally that's sort of how it was developed. And over time, that's just sort of how they engage in symptoms as opposed to really look at and fully engage with their emotional experience. Yes. Yes, very much. This can also happen with other kinds of eating disorder symptoms, like with a binge purge cycle. So often people describe binging and purging as, you know, they might not use the word dissociative, but they'll describe it as sort of going into like a trance-like state or sort of an altered state of being. And this can happen in the binge part of the cycle. So the binging can be this automatic compulsive behavior that's all consuming and that sort of empties the mind of any thoughts or feelings. And then people will often describe how after a purge episode, they feel drained, they feel numb, they feel depleted, exhausted, and just completely unable to feel anything. So what they've essentially done is put their body through this exhausting and self-harming experience that 
take so much out of them that they can't feel anything else or think about anything else. And people, again, sort of like with restricting, it may start out its own behavior, but then over time, people do learn that, oh, if I'm really upset right now, I'm just going to turn to food to get rid of these feelings. There can also be something very symbolic about the act of purging that is related to sort of the act. It can allow people to feel as though they are purging their feelings. So they're emptying themselves out, getting rid of whatever feels toxic or yucky or uncomfortable inside of them and gives them a sense of relief. But we know that sense of relief is temporary and is really not addressing what's going on. I wanted to address what you had mentioned with the binge part of this cycle is that when somebody enters into this trance-like state and then some ideas in treatment come in and say, or in recovery and say, well, let's try to stop the binge and let's see how we can just interfere in some way. And if the mind has entered into this place, then trying to just stop it is not really an option because we're not able to do that in that moment. And so we have to think about other ways, thinking about it through this perspective, we really have to think about other ways to address binging, especially as well as the other behaviors because of what might be happening potentially in the mind as the binge is happening. Right. And the binge, like you said, it can become addictive and it is very it can feel rewarding in certain ways. And yes, it's very hard to just stop the binge. One of the things that can be helpful for some people is, and this is very challenging, especially because of the compulsive drive of the binge, but what can be helpful for some people is just inserting a pause between the urge, which is, I want to, you know, I'm going to go buy a bunch of stuff and eat it and the act. So rather than going straight from urge to act to begin working on creating a pause where you reflect and the reflection can be, you know, what am I feeling right now? Why do I want to do this? What am I really hungry for? Am I hungry for food? Or is there some other need that I'm experiencing? And then even if in the early stages of recovery, the person goes on to binge and purge, they're still practicing, beginning to practice the idea of slowing the cycle down and allowing themselves a moment to reflect. And over time with practice, that can become a little easier and a little easier. And the hope is that eventually the person can begin to identify what they're actually feeling, what they're actually needing and not turn to food to provide that because the food doesn't really provide that. It just distracts them and kind of is a very temporary substitute for what they really want. Yeah. So if we're going back to the piece that we were talking about in the beginning about how really intense, intense and upsetting emotional experiences in our childhood or previously in our lives, that sort of creates and maintains these symptoms that it is about something deeper. It is about something that happened in the past or our ability to tolerate upsetting emotional experiences. So talking to your point that it's really not about the food in this case. Yes. And one of the things that can happen when there are earlier experiences in life that lead to dissociation is that people don't learn 
how to regulate emotions. Emotions are just put away in a box and not looked at and not dealt with and become separated from what's conscious. I see eating disorders as attempts, failed attempts, but still attempts to self-regulate. People who are turning to, for example, binging and purging, they are getting some relief in the moment from their feelings, but the feelings aren't being dealt with. They don't really go away. They come back and then they binge and purge again, and they're damaging their bodies by doing this. But it's an attempt to regulate emotions in the absence of having better skills to do so and to be able to do so in a more adaptive way. Yeah. So if we're going to address this pretty simply and almost in a reductionist way, the idea is the ultimate goal is to become aware of your emotional experience and increase your ability to regulate that affect and maybe use your words to express it as opposed to what might be happening more generally is that the symptoms are expressing your experience for you. One last question about the example piece, and I know that this is a little tricky, but is there a way to understand any form of compensatory or compulsive exercise through this perspective? Yeah, I think that it very much fits into this model when people exercise and over-exercise, they can also enter into kind of an altered state. It's a different kind of altered state than when you're binging, but it still is a shift in your consciousness. So people often experience sort of a high from exercise. They can lose themselves kind of in the process of the physical exertion. So the physical exertion of exercise, similar to the physical exertion of the binge purge cycle, it's draining. After a period of over-exercise, you're less likely to be feeling emotions. You're less likely to be thinking about distressing things. Your mind is consumed with the exercise and your body is depleted, especially when someone who's struggling with an eating disorder is over-exercising. They are pushing their body to the limits, exhausting themselves, draining themselves. And that's very similar to the kind of draining that occurs with a purge. And it's also, like I said before, the act of purging symbolically can kind of represent the act of expelling bad stuff from your body. And I think exercise can really fall into the same category and do the same thing for people. Yeah. Especially people use the term, uh, it's a release that that's, you know, exactly, exactly. It's a, it's a release of the bad stuff that they can't tolerate feeling and don't know how to express in other ways. So if we go back again to the piece of dissociation and this mind body disconnect, how can it be harmful if we don't address it? Because sort of the way that it's uh, originally developed is protective. So what happens as we go along and continue to engage in dissociation that can be particularly harmful? Well, one of the obvious ways it can be harmful is that if dissociation manifests in eating disorders, we know all the ways that eating disorders are harmful. So it can be life-threatening. It can be physically dangerous and harmful. 
and then not addressing, not regulating feelings can, of course, have other ramifications as well. It can limit one's ability to have meaningful relationships, whether family or friendship relationships or romantic relationships, because the person is not sort of fully operating with access to all experience and all feelings. So when there are limits on your the range of emotions that you experience and are able to engage with, then there are going to be limits to the depth of the relationships you're able to form. So often people who are dissociative have less than satisfactory, less full relationships. And then we know that dissociated experience can still intrude upon your life in other ways, in ways that can be very disturbing. So if you have experience that you haven't engaged with and formulated in words that you're not addressing, it can come out in nightmares, it can come out in flashbacks, all the sort of PTSD type experiences that can be the sequelae of more significant trauma or even less significant trauma. People may find themselves feeling afraid in certain situations and not understanding why or feeling guarded in interpersonal situations or in work situations and having no idea where that's coming from. So those are some of the examples that come to mind about how dissociation that isn't addressed or dealt with can be destructive. So you make a very good argument. <laughs> why then, and maybe people don't think about this as directly, but why then don't people sort of like line up to address this? And in, in essence, I'm as asking what makes it so challenging to address this disconnect? Well, I think what makes it challenging is exactly what caused the dissociation to develop in the first place. This is the way that the mind is protecting the person from the full knowledge of experience that might be unmanageable or too painful to bear. So people are not lining up to sort of get to the bottom of what's going on. Well, for two reasons. One, because it's scary and threatening and painful. Another reason, one of the things that makes it so difficult is that they don't know about it a lot of the time. If you don't have access to parts of your emotional experience, then you don't know it's there. You don't know that it's something that's contributing to your eating disorder, and you don't even know how to begin to talk to someone about it. Right. Which is why we often see people start therapy or any form of treatment when the symptoms get so bad that it interferes with their level of functioning or whatever it interferes with in their life. And that's the major contributing factor to seeking out help. And then we can potentially get to the stuff underneath. But it's not like, I think I have a dissociation issue and that's why I'm going to come to therapy. Correct. <laughs> right. It's the symptoms that bring the person into treatment. And then over time and through the building of a relationship with a therapist, the dissociation begins to show itself. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, so often challenging and potentially for our work on the other side of 
the couch that often we'll see people come in for treatment and they do get better and their behaviors subside. But then when we get a point where we're almost going to address some of this piece about adverse experiences and intense upsetting emotional experiences, that's when a lot of people are like, all right, I'm better. I'm going to leave because of this point, it's so challenging to really look at some of these experiences that are are potentially terrifying to look at. And I think the way you're describing it, that is often the order in which things go. If someone comes to treatment with severe symptoms, often you have to, as a therapist, address the symptoms first to be able to get the person to a place of enough physical and psychological stability to engage with the scary stuff, the dark stuff, the stuff that they've locked away and have never looked at. So I find often that I'll be, you know, staying more on the surface and really working with someone on symptoms for an extended period of time before there's a sense that they're even ready to engage. And part of what happens through that process is also the building of the therapeutic relationship and hopefully the development of some trust so that by the time we get to opening things up, it feels safe enough to do so. And it doesn't always feel safe enough to do so, but that's the idea. And I think, yeah, no one's going to come in on day one or it's rare for someone to come in on day one and feel ready to begin to dig away at and look at what is deep in there and underlying the eating disorder that they've been, you know, that the mind has been putting somewhere else for a long time. Yeah. So even, you know, we're talking about that. It's obviously imperative to seek treatment and definitely therapy, but, you know, even just thinking about the healing process, how do we begin to heal this besides for just saying, oh, go to therapy. Like once I decide to go to therapy, what do I talk about? What do I do? Like, what are some ways I can actually start the healing process if I'm ready to do that? So You know, there are things I think that people can do, begin to do or think about doing on their own. And then there are also, and this can also go in tandem with working in therapy. But so the example I gave before, which is even just beginning to recognize, I think it's a very big step for someone to recognize that their symptoms are expressing something that they have no other means to express currently. So something, whatever it may be, that is unable to be put into words or other modalities is getting expressed through the body and through eating behaviors. So that's, I think, a big leap for a lot of people who have no idea that that's the case. And I think just beginning to be aware of that is can be very helpful. So then someone might be able to begin to do something like what I described earlier, which is oh, I really want to binge right now. I'm just going to give myself a minute to reflect on where this might be coming from. And even if you don't know where it's coming from, what am I feeling? Oh, you know, I had this really difficult conversation with my boss earlier today. Maybe that's making me feel stressed or angry, or maybe I'm worried that I'm going to lose my job. Oh, that might be what's leading me to binge right now. So beginning to again, sort of create a pause between the urge and the behavior and 
be more reflective about what might be happening. And of course, that's something then that the person can also do with a therapist and begin to talk about it. Oh, I noticed that I binged and purged after I had this very stressful day at work. And then those those links are, the goal is to begin to link the parts of the mind that have become disconnected from each other through dissociation. So that's part of the linking process is to begin to recognize that there's something that bridges the experience you had earlier in the day and the compulsive behavior that you engage in at night. Yeah. And to your point in the beginning that that's not probably possible and that when we sit down, we're not going to be able to bridge that gap. We're not going to be able to identify all the pieces, but if we can at least identify what might be happening internally, physically, emotionally, whatever we can, that can sort of start the process. And then eventually we might be able to put some pieces together, but without knowing what's going on in our body, we can't possibly create any connections. So I don't know if you do something like this. One of my sort of tools I use even for myself sometimes is like a head to toe scan, like what's actually happening in my body. Cause I might not have a vocabulary for any emotions. I might know sad and angry. And like, those are the emotions that I know. So if I say like, oh, I feel pressure in my chest, that is a really great first step. I agree with you. And I think that even though what I've been talking about is finding the way to eventually symbolize and formulate feelings and experience in words, that there's also a lot of value in actually tuning into one's body and connecting to the body. Because a lot of people with eating disorders feel very disconnected from their bodies. You know, the symptoms serve to further that disconnection. If you feel numb and sort of lightheaded and floaty, then you're having this disconnect from the body. A lot of people with eating disorders try not to look at themselves in the mirror or sort of, you know, experience themselves even as sort of a head and a mind that doesn't have a body or wishing that they don't have a body. So exercises like that can help you begin to kind of re-inhabit your body and see your body as the place that you reside and a place where feelings might be held and expressed. I wonder if there's a way... I don't know. I'm just like sort of putting on the spot here. If there's a way we can almost, you know, thinking about it being in therapy, if we can utilize our relationship with our therapist, or if let's say we're in nutrition counseling, our relationship with our dietitian or any members of our team to heal, um, this is sort of separate from how do we begin to heal from the disconnect question in general, but sort of like bringing in the relationship if that's possible. Yeah. I mean, I, as a psychoanalytic therapist, I see the relationship as central to the healing process. And that's the relationship with the therapist, with the dietitian, with multiple members of the team, if there's a team in place. So even the act of beginning to develop a relationship with a care provider is a really big step and can be a big challenge for people with eating disorders in particular, because in addition to what I've been talking about, that the symptoms are sort of a substitute for emotional experience, the symptoms can also be a substitute for meaningful relationships with others. So, you know, we often think about the idea that the person's most significant relationship 
has been with their eating disorder for the last 10 years. Even just letting someone else into something that maybe you've never told anyone that's been very secretive and private is a really big step and takes a lot of courage. And of course, it makes things maybe easier and more straightforward if someone's able to begin treatment and be really straightforward and honest and open with their therapist and with the team. But often that is not the case. And I like to think about, you know, the relationship as a work in progress and that building the relationship with the therapist and the rest of the team is actually part of the treatment process and part of growth and healing. So if it's feeling difficult to be honest or open with a therapist, I really encourage people to say that, to say, you know, I'm having trouble talking about this, or I don't want to talk about this. This is something I'm not ready to discuss. And as a therapist, I see my job with someone who's feeling this way In that moment, my job is to help them begin to understand what's so hard about being honest. So it's not just about, you know, come on, you have to tell me what is, you know, innermost thoughts and feelings, but what are you feeling afraid of? Is there something about me or our dynamic that's making you feel self-protective right now? I'll often talk to people, and this is related to dissociation, about the idea that there are different parts of themselves. So maybe there's a part of the person who wants to be able to talk about things. They came to therapy, but at the same time, there might be a part of them that is protecting the rest of themselves. So there can be a protective or a scared part. So I would be curious about the part of them that wants to hide and the part of them that wants to open up. I might also want to know what kinds of experiences they've had in the past when they've opened up to someone, if they've ever had anyone in their life that they've been able to talk to. If they had, you know, a mother who would like shut them down when they tried to talk, how were feelings or experiences or emotions talked about in other contexts in their life? Because often that's what gets carried over into the therapy relationship. So it's not just about, you know, let's cut through this and get to the heart of the matter, but let's talk about what's making that hard. And I think that is a very valuable part of the therapeutic process. Something that I've sort of differentiated in my mind is we think that there's the heart of the matter and that it's just difficult to talk about those issues and dynamics. But when something stops anyone from talking about something, that in and of itself is potentially the heart of the issue and sort of glossing over that and say, no, 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 just say it. You'll be fine. Is completely ignoring what's happening right now and the fears that are associated and the relational past that's happening. That is so much information. And I think old ideas about what psychoanalytic work was had to do with, oh, you have to sort of cut through all this stuff and get to the root of the problem or the deep underlying issues. And actually there can be value to that, but I think that what's at the heart of the matter is often what is actually happening in the moment, in the room between the person who has come for help and the therapist what is making that person, you know, what's making this hard? How is this feeling? What's happening between me and you that may be 
reminiscent of experiences you've had at other times in your life or what's happening between me and you that feels unique to our dynamic. And let's look at that and understand it and talk about that. Yeah. Because sort of alluding to what you were saying before, having a relationship that's solid in its foundation will allow this person, once they get to points that we sort of cross over from behavior modification to let's understand maybe what's driving this and talk about the intricacies and they're cognitively able to engage in that conversation. The relationship needs to be rock solid in order for that to happen and that they don't run away. And if the relationship isn't rock solid, that is also, I see that as part of the therapy process. It's grist for the mill. So if I ask a question and someone gets angry at me, I'm curious about that. I want to know about that. What is creating this reaction? What are you feeling right now? Is the way I ask that or is something, is there something that's happening between us right now? Again, that is similar to other experiences you've had, because we know that past relational patterns get repeated and reenacted in, you know, throughout one's life. People talk about this all the time, that they might end up in a relationship with someone who's just like their father. And one of the ways that relationship patterns get repeated is in the experience with the therapist. That's not a barrier to growth and healing. That is part of the process of growth and healing. That's what we start to engage with. We start to engage with the feelings that are coming up in the space between patient and therapist. And that's part of the process of formulating feelings, of putting experience into words and breaking that cycle of feelings being only expressed through self-destructive symptoms. So just like a tiny little plug for It Takes a Village paper. I love that one. Before we wrap up, first of all, thank you again for taking the time. I appreciate it. I think that this was really, really insightful. So I appreciate you sharing your wisdom with me and my listeners. Uh, before I let you go, can you just share with us where we can find you? Yeah, I'm a, I am have a private practice in Manhattan, currently online, but hopefully someday in person. My office, someday. Someday, <laughs> my office is in Chelsea, Flatiron area. My website is drdaniellenovak.com, Novak with a CK. And that's where I can be found. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right, talk next time.